Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Intern Investing. It's been a while. I think it's been about three weeks. We took a little break for Christmas, New Year's. Um, we've been putting a lot of content on YouTube. So if you've been wondering where we've been, definitely go check out our YouTube channel because we're constantly putting out um, some shorter form content on there. But we've got some good stuff for this podcast today. We've got uh, a review of our No, we prediction. don't. No, well, we don't. It's all bad we, stuff. We were just saying we didn't have a single good prediction. <laughs> that That is true. That is true. So Jamie and I were on a podcast. Zane, I don't know where you were for this one at the beginning of 2022, um, but this was about one year ago. Jamie and I were on, and we discussed four predictions four main predictions for what's going to happen in the stock market in 2023. Two of these were who, what, what companies we thought were going to perform the best. Um, and two of the, two of the other and ones were just kind of sector and index related. It, it was, we were <laughs> over four. Our batting average is terrible. And this goes to show how difficult it is to predict what is going to happen in the stock market in the short term. And by the short term, we mean a year or less. Um, and that's kind of the predictions that we, and it, well, I will say a lot of this is just in good fun. Like we understand that we're not economists and economists also, no matter how smart, how intellectual, they can't predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months uh, in the stock market. They can't predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months in the bond market. Um, because like what happened this year, the Fed raised interest rates at a faster rate than we've ever seen in history. Um, and so that's that definitely had a, um, a bad effect on all, <laughs> all of our predictions. But here they are. So one of mine was I was very bullish on REITs with a uh, really mediocre hypothesis. I was talking about the shortage of homes, which is a very small piece of real estate. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a large industry, but it's not, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not everything in the real estate sector. And so I was bullish uh, with a very weak thesis and then XLRE, which is a real estate index, is down nearly 30% this year. Um, Roku was a stock that I picked for my best performer of 2022. It is down 82%. Um, Jamie, you want to talk about your pick for snow? Hey, it, it's not as bad as Roku, which I'm taking as a good sign. But yeah, I picked I picked Snowflake for my stock for 2022. That uh, clearly didn't pan out as of, uh, you know, even if you picked any tech company, really, it probably wouldn't have panned out. Snowflake is down 59% in 2022. Uh, the main case, uh, I mean, I, I still think it, it, it kind of holds up. I mean, uh, the, the long-term thesis for Snowflake is that it has a really high-quality product, um, and, you know, it's selling it really well well it's gaining a lot of adoption and the uh, you know the shift to uh, digital data storage is continuing to rise N I, I don't think any of that has changed since 2022 but obviously the sentiment has changed and uh, over the short term less than one year sentiment tends to drive uh, you know, stock price returns and uh, clearly that that's what happened with snowflake so uh, yep so that was that was my first prediction then um, our, our fourth prediction which I believe was mine as well um, I expected good returns from the market and uh, clearly that did not work uh, the the uh, 
NASDAQ was down something like 32% this year, the S&P 500 down something 18 to 20% or something like that. And uh, my, my, my reasoning, a uh, pretty, pretty weak thesis, but you know, if you always say the market's going to go up, you're going to be right two out of every three years because the market tends to go up two out of every three years. And that's basically it. Don't uh, say so this weak. is the one year I was wrong. <laughs> Don't say that's weak because that's, uh, that's my thesis for next year. <laughs> but okay predictions for for this year I can take this first connor i feel like you've you've been talking a lot i can jump in okay first cool. and break it up a little bit if you want um and you know i really try to make my prediction for next year obviously take it again with a grain of salt this is a prediction i'm expecting it to be wrong you know what if i know it's going to be wrong you shouldn't think it's going to be right um but i'm looking at a chart um, that I saw from Pro Shop Guy MF on Twitter. I'll throw it up on screen, and for you guys, it's in the doc if you want to check it out. Basically, the premise is the average return doesn't exist. It's showing the distribution of S&P 500 returns. I'm sorry, Dow Jones returns uh, since 1900, and there's only a handful of years in that average return range of 5% to 10%. The vast majority are way outside of that with, you know, a huge section being uh, winners, 20% or higher gains and, and huge losers losing 20% um, or more, even some down more than 40%. So it's really tough to say that it's going to be an average year. Um, and I think with what's been going on this year, it's going to trickle in a little bit and we're going to see a less than average S&P 500 return. I think it's going to be, man, it could be negative, but I, I think we're going to see definitely less than average. And I don't want to get too much more specific than that because I'll just be more wrong. Um, but <laughs> but the reasoning is even once the Fed pivots historically, the market keeps falling. At least that's what I'm seeing on, on this chart that I'll throw up. And for you guys, again, it's in the doc. But it's a bit of a leading indicator, and it seems like it takes the market a little bit longer to start to rally um, and see the effect of the lower interest rates. Um, or maybe it's just the overhang of the previously high interest rates continuing to depress the stock. So there's a bit of a lag there. And, you know, I, there are other reasons I think it's going to be a less than stellar year is the Fed is looking in the rearview mirror, looking at old data from CPI, trying to make decisions on us going forward and what they're going to do with the federal funds rate. And they keep reiterating that they're committed to fighting inflation. And I personally think inflation is a little bit overhyped and that by increasing the federal funds rate, they're actually going to do more harm than good. But yes, inflation might come down, but that's actually not the main problem any anymore. I think it could be jobs as we're saying, seeing more and more tech companies lay off workers. Um, the other, I saw an article about this, the other half of workers that weren't laid off during the pandemic. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and the last reason I'll give. Well, Zane, um, I, I want to hit on your point on inflation real yeah. quick. Um, because so, so JP Morgan released their guide to the markets. It's something they release every quarter. Um, and they pointed out that there is something called owner's equivalent rent as a component of CPI. And this is if you are a homeowner and your equivalent rent, if you were to get a house of that size in that area, what would that be? And what is the inflation of that equivalent rent? 
that makes up 24% of the CPI number. Uh, and so most people think of inflation as gas, they think of it as food, uh, they do think of it as rent, but owner's equivalent rent, making up 24% of the index uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So we're actually seeing the numbers fall in uh, things like gas, we're seeing the numbers kind of flatten out in things like food. Um, and so, you know, and then there's some core goods as well that are flattening out, actually starting to turn and, and experience some disinflation. But because that owner's equivalent rent makes up such a significant weighting of CPI, the inflation numbers still look pretty elevated. So uh, I, I just think that's, that's worth pointing out that, you know, you see the number, but the number might not tell the whole story. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point. And it's hard to sit here and say that, you know, inflation has peaked. It's not that big of a deal when the reality is a lot of people are still, you know, struggling and looking at prices way higher than they were just a year ago or just six months ago. Um, but I think, you know, looking forward, it's not going to be the, the biggest problem that we have to worry about. My, I guess, most specific bold prediction is that uh, I'll try to predict the pivot. And I think the Fed's going to have to pivot in Q3 23. So just a couple quarters from now, we'll start hopefully decreasing rates, hopefully for the, the stock market. Um, but even then, I don't think it'll help much. I think it will be a little bit too late and we're going to see below average returns for the S&P 500. Um, and the reason I think they're going to pivot then, um, which still I think is kind of sooner than later compared to what people are expecting, I think a thing they're going to have to decrease. And Part of the reasoning here is, I'll throw this up on the screen again, the interest rates that the government have to pay um, basically goes up with the federal funds rate. So as the Fed is cranking up the interest rate, the government has to pay out higher and higher um, sums of money on their interest payments for their own debt. And at a certain point, I think this becomes unsustainable. So I think they're going to be forced to pivot sooner than later, but still we're going to see below average S&P 500 returns for next year. I'm not too optimistic. Ray Dalio with the uh, bold prediction, U.S. is going bankrupt. I love it. <laughs> um. Zane, I want to I pop in real quick and kind of just talk about that. Uh, you know, we're not going to see average returns. And obviously, you're kind of pointing towards, uh, you know, lower than average uh, and, you know, potentially even negative. One of the things that uh, I've, I've heard a lot, uh, specifically from one person, Ben Carlson, and he, he writes a blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. He um, did some, did some uh, you know, Looking back at history and kind of seeing, you know, if uh, if if the prior year was down, what is the average return for the coming year? And there's basically no difference uh, between, uh, you know, whether the stock market was up in year one or down in year one, uh, what the impact or what is going to happen in year two. So uh, just for, for reference, if the prior year was down, the average S&P return was 9.2%. If it was up in year one, the average return is 9.8%. And um, uh, out of the, it uh, looks like about uh, 11 or 12 years that uh, there, there has been a loss, um, six of them. So just over half of them have had a negative year. So there's there's definitely a lot of reasons to be concerned, uh, you know, going into 2023 and definitely having reasoning. But I guess my only my, my point is, you know, um, 
there's not necessarily and I don't think this is disagreeing with what you're saying, but it's more, uh, you know, just letting listeners know that there's not necessarily a, a, a causation. A negative year doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be another negative year coming. The statistics and what history shows us that if there's a negative year, it's usually the same chance of being a positive year the coming year and delivering that average return. Obviously, we're not going to get exactly 9.2% or, you know, 9 to 10%. Uh, it's probably unlikely. But, uh, you know, on average, we're going to have that 9.2% return yeah, uh, that's likely going forward. Super interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because intuitively, for me at least, I would think if the market's down this year, oh, it's got to be a great time to buy. The market's got, got nowhere to go but up. But that's still, I think, a trap of short-term thinking, even if it might feel long-term. If you're trying to speculate on the next year, that's still a little bit short. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm seeing way too much stuff from TikTok investor on Twitter um, to think that we've reached capitulation. Because, I mean, the amount of idiotic stuff I'm seeing out there from, I mean, this is obviously all anecdotal, but... There is still a lot of idiots in the waters. The the TikTok and the TikTok investor on Twitter has to be just bone dry of content. That's how you know we'll be at the bottom because there will be no TikTok finance influencers saying, "Hey, you gotta buy now." At the bottom, there 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 won't be any at the bottom, and then you'll know once. Uh, I, I think his name is, or their name is TikTok investor on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. Once, once they are just not posting anything for like a couple of days, that's, that's the bottom. That's how, you know, there we go, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that's the indicator. That's the indicator right there. Uh, but really it actually, people may laugh those things off and we're kind of laughing it off right now, but uh, truly there is a lot of anecdotal stuff that you can see um start to happen and we can look back at 2021 and look at some anecdotal stuff that was happening um with people in nfts and crypto and i mean SaaS companies and all of that which i definitely fell into that trap a little bit not a lot um uh, but but definitely a little bit and so sometimes you can become part of the problem and not see the problem yourself this is kind of what i'm getting at all right, but, Connor. Do you want to move on to to your predictions or mine? Um, sure, I'll, I'll I'll go ahead. Um, so I wanted to talk about bonds because I think the outlook for bonds, the picture maybe is a little more clear than the picture for equities in 2023. So I'm expecting bonds to have a bounce back year. They had, uh, if you look at the ag, it was their worst year ever in 2022. Uh, and if we start to see rates fall in late 2023, like Zane was predicting, and I think that's somewhat of a safe bet if we do go into a recession in, you know, midway through this year. Um, so if rates start to fall, I think bonds could be in for a run for the next few years, because I don't think the quantitative easing is going to be as rapid uh, on the way down as it was on the way up. Um, so I think the you know, the, the falling rates may last a couple of years all the way until they reach that one, 2% level that they were at for, for a decade. And that may never happen too. I, it could be totally wrong about that. What if, I mean, if you look back at, um, at rates from the seventies and eighties, they were consistently way higher than we've ever seen in our lifetime. So 
we may just be completely wrong about that. You know, we're kind of anchoring to a number that we've seen throughout our lifetime in interest rates. And what if we never get back to that anchor? That could happen too. But I am using that as an anchor uh, in my thinking here that eventually we will get back to around that number that we saw throughout the 2010s. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of my, my theory for what's gonna happen with bonds in 2023. I think they are going to have a good year. Um, they were down, what, close to 20%? Uh, I think 16% this year, maybe more. Um, so barring any black swan event, I, you know, I'm expecting the, and even if there is a black, black swan event, I'm expecting the the fed to, uh, do some quantitative easing pretty slowly over the next few years. So that's my prediction for bonds. Um, Connor, can I, can I pop in on this one? I know we don't talk about, about bonds that often, but this has been one that as I've been studying more, you know, this is really where I'm, I'm starting to dive into bonds in school and, you know, I'm really, I'm studying and I think it's a great time to start studying these things because, uh, it's at what I see as a, a, a great time to, you know, opportunistically buy either if you are saving, you know, trying to save cash for, you know, three years from now, not necessarily long-term investment money or you're in retirement. And that's kind of where the, the position I'm in now. I, I, I want to have some, uh, some, some money sitting on the sidelines where I might need it within three to five years. So it's not necessarily something that I want to put in, uh, you know, some of the riskier sides of my investment portfolio, which is what I traditionally like to invest in because I'm willing to hold that for 10 years. And bond ETFs are something that I'm getting really interested in because of how much they've been beaten up and thus, uh, you know, with with prices going down, yields are going up. And so, uh, you know, with, with prices... What I expect for similar reasons that Connor's uh, seeing right now, um, you know, if, if, if rates decline, um, prices will, will kind of level back out a little bit and kind of ba- have a bounce back year. Um, it looks like a really intriguing place for, for me to potentially put uh, some sort of nest egg that I might need within the next three years um, in some sort of bond ETF. I don't think I want to go out and buy my own corporate bonds or T-bills or anything like that. Um, but, you know, finding some sort of bond ETF is actually looking really, really attractive to me right now. So I want to just kind of... Um, Underline Con- Connor's prediction and uh, say, yeah, I, 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 I think bonds could definitely have a bounce back here in 2023. And if not, uh, you know, pretty, pretty darn close after 2023. Yeah, it's one of those things that I look at and it's like when oil fell negative. I remember having that thought in my head. What, why don't I buy some oil stocks right now? Because of the, they won't be this low forever. I didn't do it. I had that thought <laughs> run through my brain at one point. Um, and that was in the middle of, of COVID and everything. And there was a lot of fear, uh, which definitely I, I had some of that too. Um, what if, what if oil never went back positive? You know, like that was obviously idiotic to think back on now. Um, but I mean, people were thinking what, how long will these lockdowns last? And if lockdowns last for multiple years, Oil will stay negative for a very, very long time. So uh, obviously the the fear was was there and it was justified. Um, but that's kind of the moment that I'm looking back on as as reference to the feeling that I'm having now about um, treasuries. It's like surely the Fed is not going. <laughs> surely the Fed's not going to raise rates that much higher. Um, but they may maintain those 5% levels when they, when eventually the fed funds rate does reach 5%, which I think it will. Um, and what if they maintain that for multiple years, then, you know, bonds, bonds won't perform as well as I think they're going to. So 
I don't know. That was just kind of a thought I had. But I want to talk about equities, too, because that's what mostly we talk about on this show. Um, and this is a dumb prediction game that we play, trying to figure out what is going to happen in the next 12 months. Looking back last year, I was very confident about my predictions and horribly wrong with every prediction that I made. This year, I have zero confidence in any prediction that I'm making about equities. But, I mean, maybe the inverse is true, where I have zero confidence, but I make a prediction and it comes out true. I don't know. I guess we'll see. But I'm not feeling great about um, equities going into 2023. And so, you know, if you look back historically, not often do you see consecutive down years in the market. So on a historical probability uh, way of measuring this, you would guess that the market would have a good year. You can look back at the dot-com crash and see three consecutive declines in the market um, in in back-to-back-to-back years, but that's not often the case. So I think it's only happened like two to three times since the 1950s. So the probability of that happening happening again uh, is relatively low, but that's not a good way uh, to judge what the market is going to do because you can you know, look at all the information that you have from the past, and that doesn't judge anything about what's going to happen in the future. And none of that data helps you understand what's going to happen in the market in 2023. Um, And I think there's going to be a lot of headwinds for a lot of different companies in 2023. SaaS is the sector that I am most concerned about, Um, SaaS companies, software as a service. So David Sachs, he, I think he does a bunch of venture capital. He's, he's been a venture capitalist. He's helping with Twitter right now. Um, he's fin- friends with Chamath and all those guys on Jason Isbell and, and the people on the All In podcast, which I would recommend to you guys. I don't know if you've listened to that at all. I'm not a big Chamath fan, but he's a great podcast host. He really is. Um, he He's, despite the SPAC debacle that went down. Um, he's a very intelligent guy. Uh, and he's got, I think he does have uh, some good perspectives on whether you're talking about politics, energy, um, stocks. I mean, really, I think, I think he, he's a pretty brilliant guy, uh, despite his utter failure last year, but David Sachs, to get back to my point, that was a little tangent there. Um, but David Sachs was talking about three major headwinds that SAS is going to face in 2023. So there's going to be a reduced seat count from other company layoffs. So that means that if you have a SaaS company and you are selling to another company that needs your software as a service, say they have 100 employees, they all need it, great. Well, what if those layoffs happen? Your customer lays off 20% of their company. Now you have 80 seats. So they're only paying for 80 seats. That's going to hurt SaaS companies. Then you look at a higher churn rate because a lot of companies are going to be looking at their expenses and say, well, maybe we won't pay for this software. Maybe we don't really need this. This was kind of a perk. It wasn't a necessity. Um, So we're going to cancel this. So I think there's going to be some higher churn. And also the last point that he made was that um, turnover from customers, um, or I'm sorry, new business is going to be 50% of what it was in 2022, which I think is a mild expectation. Um, So I look at this sector in general, and I think it's very vulnerable going into this year. Now, there are some companies that have a lot of pricing power. They have strong balance sheets, and they're not discretionary services, meaning they are a necessity. Um, You know, I look at some companies like uh, Salesforce. I think Salesforce is more of a necessity. Not that I think it's desk in there too. 
Yeah, Auto, Autodesk too. So I think there are some companies that will prevail. Uh, they're very durable. Um, but again, to get back to my point I made at the beginning of this, we're not economists. Not that economists can judge what the market's going to do, but we don't try to uh, invest based on what we think the economy is going to do. We just try to factor that into our decisions that we make in our own portfolio. Uh, but that definitely is not everything when we're judging what we're investing in. All right, Jay, you're up. Give us the hottest take. I, I, I will. I have an extremely hot take that I don't think Zane is going to like. Before before that, I do want to kind of um, quickly touch on Connor's. I think connor's last prediction i think that um you know sass having a bad year of especially his his first and third reason i think those are really great reasons but um you know i i do think that there will definitely be a lot of companies that aren't necessarily discretionary and there will be a lot of higher churn especially those that cater to smb platforms that traditionally are a little more vulnerable uh to macroeconomic headwinds and things like that but um Obviously, there's going to be winners in the space, uh, like Connor said. There are there are those that are much more durable, um, that are much more. Um, there there are companies that are much more resilient, um, that that need that customers need their products no matter the economic environment. And I think that finding those types of companies that won't experience that sort of churn and those that don't, uh, you know, make all of their revenue based on the number of seats and it's just a flat subscription, uh, you know, you could think of like a SEMrush or something like that that has like uh, enterprise, uh, an enterprise solution, but it doesn't count on seats. Finding that balance that uh, helps companies be less vulnerable to those, some of those risks I think is important. But continue at some before you go, yeah, I want to hit on that real quick. One area, this is just kind of a random take. I have, uh, I I think a bubble area for SaaS where I'm sure we've already seen valuations come down a lot, but I think where they're going to be really vulnerable is, I want to get your thoughts on this, but it's the back office kind of accounting software space. I feel like it's so like there's just so many companies. I feel like it's so overcrowded almost doing the same thing. And I don't know if it's that I just don't have enough experience with it to see the differentiation. If the market is just so big that there's room and reason to have all of them, but this it's a type of company that I see come up all the time. And I just really don't see how they're that different. So yeah, there's there's been a reason that I've stayed away from this space uh, in particular. I mean, I, as as much as I love those back end those back end solutions for uh, you know accounting and things like that, and they do have value, but there are so many different players. When in reality, um, you know, a, a QuickBooks, a, a QuickBooks in, into a QuickBooks can do the job for most small and medium sized businesses, and then just having your in house accountant for larger businesses is a far better solution, I guess. Uh, so I maybe not necessarily see a lot of slowdown in those companies and a lot of failure. I mean, I think I think that there will be a lot of a lot of failures in that space, but. I would be m much less surprised if I just see companies, lots of those types of companies get acquired. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the form of acquisitions, whether it's companies like like Bill.com being taken private or being acquired by a very acquisitive company like an Intuit, something like that, um, uh, uh, alongside uh, you know some of those smaller players or those stuck in the middle uh, falling by the wayside. But all right, let's get into my two predictions. I have two predictions. And my first one is um, that the market's going to go up. Um, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into this a little bit. So um, 2022 returns for the three major indexes, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, were uh, respectively negative 8.8%. For the Dow, negative eighteen percent for the S and P five hundred, and negative thirty two and a half percent for the Nasdaq. Uh, as I as I usually try to to believe, I think the market's going to go up. Uh, maybe hopefully I'll be right this uh, this year. But I expect specifically, I expect that this ranking is going to get flipped. Uh, specifically, the Nasdaq is going to outperform the Dow. Uh, you know, if we have an, uh, a a large uh, you know positive year, typically because the Nasdaq has uh, higher growth companies, more risky companies, they, it will outperform the Dow. And you see that, uh, you know, through the, through other years and specifically this year, when we have a bad year, the NASDAQ significantly underperforms the Dow, whereas the Dow is more stable. So I think that the NASDAQ is going to outperform the Dow yet. I'm going to say that small cap tech is still going to underperform the Dow's total return in 2023. And here's my reasoning for it. We've, we've talked a lot about some of the macroeconomic issues going on that are persisting into 2023. So I'm not going to talk about those, but um, I think that those risks are impacting small cap and especially tech businesses. Again, we've, we've gone over this a lot in this podcast, so I'm not going to dive into exactly why, but uh, you know, these, these, uh, you know, un- unprofitable, cash burning companies that need capital it's going to be more expensive for them to uh, you know acquire capital um, whether through uh, you know at getting debt or issuing shares and diluting the stock or uh, you know just seeing growth slow so there are a lot of problems that small cap tech companies that are in more of the uh, capital accumulation phase of their life cycle instead of the the self-sustaining or capital returning stages that they're in um, and I think that's going to uh, you know bite them in the butt as these challenges are going to persist in 2023 so while I think the Nasdaq as a whole is going to uh, perform better than the the Dow, I think it's mostly going to be carried by those big tech names, those ones either self-sustaining or uh, returning cash to shareholders, and uh, the, the small cap tech, um, those those ones needing capital are going to fall by the wayside and underperform the Dow and kind of bring the Dow down a little bit in 2023. That's the, I, I was going to push back before you made that point about big tech driving most of the returns to the NASDAQ, because 40% of the companies in uh, the, the NASDAQ are unprofitable. So... Um, that's a pretty wild statistic, and most of those are, you know, in that in that small cap range. And so, if you have forty percent of an indice that's unprofitable and typically small cap, uh, that would probably drive a lot of the returns. So I was I was just I was just thinking about your point. You know, well, if you think small cap tech is going to underperform, um, you better hope for you know, a big comeback from, from big tech, which is what you said. So, well, it, 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 it's that big tech that I really think is going to do flawlessly. I mean, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head. I should, I should have prepped them beforehand, but some of these, some of the biggest companies in the world, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons, all of these companies are down staggering amounts. I think Apple ended 2022 down something like 20 to 25%. Amazon is down even farther. It comes to a point where you're seeing the biggest businesses, the biggest tech businesses in the world. Clearly, they're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to disappear in 2023. You have to wonder how much farther down can these companies go? And when it comes to like an Apple or as, or an Amazon, I'm like, well, 
I don't think they can go down that much farther. Uh, you know, famous last words, I guess. But I think that the, the, the bounce back for some of these big tech companies that got absolutely slaughtered in 2022, they're going to bounce back. And that's going to, uh, you know, lift the broader NASDAQ because those, uh, you know, the, the 10 largest holdings uh, make up a, a, a pretty decent chunk of the total S&P or, or uh, of, of the NASDAQ. And we could see though that 40% of the NASDAQ that's unprofitable miraculously become profitable as they cut out their back office accounting software and start uh, <laughs> shifting around the numbers in the books. You never know. That's, that's a great tie into everything, Connor. All right. Um, I, I want to get to my last prediction because this is, I think, the boldest prediction out of all three of us by a very, very wide margin. So oh here it is. I think that Elon Musk is going to resign as CEO of Tesla to focus on his other companies, namely Twitter and SpaceX. All right. Zane, no, Zane and I talked a, a little no, bit about this. That's not true. <laughs> Zane and I talked a little bit about this offline um, on, on another recording uh, during the bull versus bear on Tesla. You can definitely check it out. I, I, I talked a little bit about this here. But um, my idea about Elon Musk is that he is a visionary and he is a builder. He loves building things from the ground up and he likes working on massive projects that are really difficult to solve. Tesla, 100% that type of idea. Making EVs and electric vehicles mainstream, that was a extremely difficult problem that is uh, very vital to the world. And he built that company from the ground up. That's great. That's exactly what I think, uh, you know, fits the Elon Musk criteria of building a business. The same thing goes with SpaceX and doing all that space stuff. I think that's exactly the Elon Musk type of company. So it makes sense that he's running that business. But now we're at a moment where Tesla's kind of struggling with a little bit of demand, and he's obviously getting a lot of flack for, uh, you know, buying Twitter at, while he's still running this, uh, you know, a hundred, uh, you know, multi hundred billion dollar company. And so what I think is that Tesla's kind of at the end stage of this uh, this point where it's not necessarily a, a startup anymore. It's definitely not a startup. It's, it's a large established business. So I, I think that he being the innovative spirit that wants to build something from the ground up is going to say, eh, I could run Tesla and deal with all the politics that I have, have publicly said I don't like and deal with all that stuff. Or oh, yeah, and just I can deal go with Twitter. There's or, no politics. But they're both, there's less politics with Twitter, but there's a heck of a lot less in SpaceX and just being two private companies in general. Of course, there's a little more politics in Twitter, but it is kind of a turnaround story. It is that something where he gets to build and innovate and kind of create something. You, it's not exactly from scratch, but he's really trying to make it a turnaround. So he, in in his eyes, he could see that as a building, rebuilding something from scratch. So with these two projects, he only has 24 hours of time in the day. I think he's going to eventually drop Tesla, set up some sort of uh, plan where somebody takes takes over for him as CEO, and he goes to work solely on El um, on SpaceX and Twitter. That's I think. Cool. I think Elon it, it is going to invent more time in a day. He's going to use that 25th hour <laughs> to acquire another company. No. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, though, I think um, the only the only thing I would say is I I think there's a you know a case to be made for that happening. But 
you know, I think Tesla is, is like Elon. It's like a child. I think, I think he said that honestly, publicly, um, because there was a moment where he was forced to, you know, fund, um, he had one pool of money and SpaceX and Tesla were, you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. He needed to fund them to survive and he couldn't choose. And he decided to split the money between both and, uh, you know, get to work and, and make it happen. And he did, but, and, you know, Tesla has come so far and it's mature, but the building, there's so much building still to be done. I mean, they're taking on these innovative projects like FSD. Um, there's the whole energy storage um, and um, integrated um, grid that, that Tesla is working on that sometimes it falls to the background. And then the whole uh, generalized AI and uh, the Tesla bot. I think that's plenty to keep him interested and stick around. I think the big question for me is, Will he find someone that he deems capable? And I think that the reason he might not step down for a while is that that bar is probably extremely high. Like if he thinks he could do a better job in any respect than someone else, he'll probably stay the CEO and not want to pass off. You know, he doesn't want to leave any you know, growth on the table for Tesla. Zane, do you genuinely believe that Elon Musk has the capability to believe that there's somebody better to run Tesla, his baby, than himself? I genuinely, I don't, I don't think that if, if, if that is the case and he would be happy to move on and just not, but he has to find somebody better to run Tesla than himself. I think he'll never move on. I don't, I don't think that that is the case because I think he is very, confident in his ability to run it it's a matter of not that i can't run it or that i shouldn't be running it it's i don't want to run it because there are other more exciting things uh you know other other childs or children over here named mm -hmm. spacex and twitter that uh also need attention yeah and so you didn't you didn't really get into the ramifications on the on the stock but you know we kind of talked about this earlier too off camera but uh i feel like if elon does step down it's a not even going to be a terrible thing for for tesla stock because it's hard to imagine that one he would leave the company entirely um he'd probably you know take part of the ceo role and give it to someone else and take the keep doing the part that he likes um but then we talked about this if elon does step down and the stock drops how can that also be true that when elon is super distracted and not at Tesla, you know, the stock drops. I think it's like, it can't be both ways. I feel like he's, he's a good thing for Tesla or he's not. I think he is. Um, and I think he, like you said, I think he likes Tesla. He's going to be sticking around for a while. I don't, I don't see any hints of him leaving, even though he has a ridiculous amount of work to do for so many companies. Zane, it was it was actually funny. Um, I I was contemplating adding uh, a piece of a sentence onto my prediction and saying the and the stock would go up when he leaves or the stock would go <laughs> down. But I started thinking about it and I was like, well, um, I don't I don't necessarily know which way because on the one hand he is a definitely a valuable resource for Tesla. On the other hand, he's kind of this uh, uh, crazy guy that is just so unpredictable. Um, and so you know, some investors would like him to leave. Because because of that unpredictability and the stock would go up. Some investors wouldn't like that. I think I'm on that side, stock although I do have my gripes. Don't, <laughs> I, come on, guys. Elon I, is really, are, are, you, are you that confident? That, yes. well, I mean, Elon Musk yes. has, has deteriorated his brand, his, his own name so much over this past, gosh, six months after he's just done this whole crazy ass thing with Twitter. 
you you don't think that there will be some investors that will be like, thank God this is gone and we'll have a CEO that we know is fully focused on working with Tesla. You don't think that there will be no. some happiness that causes their share price to go up? No. Zero percent, zero percent chance? I think it would fall 30% in a day. Um, I think when it got down to like $30, $40 a share, then those people would start to come in. I but think of Elon as an accelerator for growth that's already happening at Tesla. Like, I think they would probably still hit the goals, just maybe not as fast if they didn't have Elon cracking the whip and directing the ship a little bit. But so Elon was, I'm going to transition us here to the, to the last segment of the show. He was a big factor of 2022, but there was a lot of defining moments. You can think of Sam Bankman-Fried recently uh, was a huge headline. Um, Elon obviously got a ton of the news as well, um, but there was a lot to learn for sure. So we wanted to walk through a couple of our biggest takeaways, things that we you know, really learned from 2022. I'll let one of you guys take it over. So I learned that durability matters in what you invest in, you know, and, and what I mean by that is the companies that you hold in your portfolio or whatever securities you hold in your portfolio, figure out how durable they are. You know, when you go to buy a car, for example, you want that car to endure the next five to 10 years that you own it. You don't want it to be, you know, you know, pieces falling out of it. You want the engine to function properly. You want the transmission to be smooth. Those are all things that you look for when you're trying to buy a car. Same is true with any security that you put in your portfolio. What is going to happen when you hit bumps in the road? You want it to be, you, you want it to endure the next five to 10 years. And that's the type of companies that I want to invest in. You know, like you can take risk. Like if you're going to buy a car, you know, there's a few things wrong, but you don't think they're uh, significant enough to worry about how durable that, that vehicle may be. There's a, that's also true for companies that you own. There may be some blemishes to the perfect picture that you see, um, but how is it going to hold up in a year like 2022? And that's a question that I think everybody should ask, where we had this comment on one of our videos uh, about a week ago. And we made a bear case, I believe it was for lemonade. And in that video, yeah, we made a bull and a bear case. Someone commented, if the bear case, if you can come up with this good of a bear case, it's not worth owning. And I thought to myself, well, I feel like for every company that I own, I've come up with a very solid bear case. Um, and the companies that would endure through that bear case scenario are the ones that I want to own. Um, and so, you know, obviously with a company like Lemonade, the reason that I own that is not because it's durable. Um, it's, it's because I am taking a risky bet on that company. I really am. And so I think there's a time and a place for that, but I think the bulk of your portfolio has to be focused on durability um, throughout all economic conditions that, that they may go through. Yeah, you raised the question of how will this company that I invest in hold up? And I like that word choice, but I think there's kind of two sides to that coin. There's holding up the stock and then there's holding up the, the business and the fundamental metrics that matter. So if you can find a company that has the, the durable business, 
and will hold up as a business and the fundamentals will be strong. Maybe it can even continue its growth trajectory and thrive in the downturn. And then you can really not worry about the stock. The stock doesn't have to be durable. Or maybe it won't. Maybe for a period of time, it sucks and it just plateaus. And, and, and not every company, the goal has to be growth. Yeah, I, I think that's also important too, is that in a year like 2022, growth for some companies is not that important. It's more about enduring through that year. And so you may see some stagnation in earnings numbers that are coming in, but what's that balance sheet look like? And that's a great place to go look for durability, I think is, is the strength of the balance sheet. The thing I learned in 2022 was that as much as I want to or I wish I could, I can't ignore the Fed and other major macro matters in, uh, you know, in, in my investing process. I try to um, separate into boxes things I can control and things I can't control. And the things I can't control, I don't necessarily worry about and I pay a hell of a lot less attention to. Things I can control, I focus on a lot more, especially in my investing process, but that's also just something I deal with in my entire life. Now, the Fed and what they do and how much they raise rates or how much they don't raise rates or the, the language that they're using in their meetings, that is something I can't control. And so for a while, I have basically uh, you know subscribed to the idea that this shouldn't necessarily uh, affect or impact how I'm investing, what I'm investing in, et cetera, et cetera, um, because I can't control it. And while I do agree to that uh, to, to some extent, I, I, I simply can't ignore it. That is the lesson that I learned. I can't ignore the Fed and what they're doing because they control, they impact, they affect the U.S. economy. And when it comes to investments, uh, you, you can't uh, simply ignore and just put something that is controlling the U.S. economy out of out of your mind. You don't necessarily have to change your investment thesis completely to the whims of whatever they're doing or, uh, you know, uh, drastically alter how you invest because of what the Fed does. The Fed doesn't have to control everything that you do, but you simply can't ignore it. And I think that is what I learned in 2022. Zane, what was your takeaway? Yeah, I'll try to keep it quick. Um, Basically, I learned don't follow the most flashy people sometimes on Twitter, YouTube, whatever kind of social media, uh, it can be very tempting to follow people that are very flashy and they seem like they know everything. Um, I talked about one particular creator that um, that I like, like nothing against the guy. Um, the channel is solving the money problem. Um, he makes content on Tesla daily and it's Couch Investor and I talked about this. He just, you know, kind of saturates the market with Tesla content and it's almost as if every single thing has a positive spin for Tesla. And sometimes you have to ask the question, you know, what is the bear case here? Like, can something actually go wrong? Um, So I think focusing more on people that are less flashy sometimes can make their own bear case, like we talked about. One particular example um, I found on Twitter is Lou Whiteman from The Motley Fool. He was kind enough to share his results on Twitter that his portfolio was down 12% this year. I mean, not bad when you consider the S&P 500 was down 19%. So not the flashiest investor. How the guy covers uh, a lot of industrials and airline stocks are not super flashy, but he outperformed the market a hell of a lot more than I did. (laughs) So definitely have to respect that. What's up, everyone? Thanks for watching. We hope you enjoyed that video. Check out more of our best videos right here. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already for more videos like this.
See you next time.